In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy Spirit, come down upon us and help us to respond to our, our Heavenly Father for everything that He's revealed to us. Give us the gift of faith. Give us the gift to respond to Him out of love for Him and a desire for salvation. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. So last week, we talked about how God revealed Himself to us, that we can figure out that God exists through our reason. That was two weeks ago. Last week, we, said he, we, we talked about how He fills in the blanks for us by revealing Himself to us, to helping us better know who He is. So the question this week is then, okay, He's revealed Himself to us. How do we respond? How do we respond to that revelation that God has made to us? Because it's, revelation is an invitation to us. It's an invitation to come to Him to come to know him. Well, we call our response to God faith. We respond to God through faith. Now, when we use this word faith, I think we tend as a culture, we tend in our day and age to see faith more of wishful thoughts, wishful desires. We wish that things will be this way. We want things to be this way. And that's not really what faith is about. Faith is more than just a wish. You know, though, well, I have faith something good's going to happen. We, like, you know, kind of like karma. You know, I've been a good person, so I have faith that something good's going to come to me. Stuff like that. And faith is, is much more. Faith is a, here's a nasty word, submission. It's a submission to God. It's where we submit ourselves. We give ourselves intellect and will. So our intelligence, our ability to learn, our rational thought, and our will, our, choose, our choice to do things, you know, our, our desire, desires and so on. We give them over to God. We submit them to God. That is, so we have both you know, intellect and will, and we, we submit them to God. And this is what we are talking about when we use the words, I believe. When we say that I believe in God, we are saying that by faith, we are submitting ourselves to him. We are giving ourselves over to him. And so the, the catechism uses the phrase, the obedience of faith. And this is where you can see I'm, uh, that faith isn't just a, a wish, but it is actually a, a giving it over to him. You know, the catechism says, to obey, which comes from the Latin ab audire, to hear or listen to. In faith is to submit freely to the word that has been heard, because it is, its truth is guaranteed by God, who is truth itself. Well, that word obedience, of course, is another bad word. We don't like to obey. You know, we don't like, we don't like to submit. We don't like to obey. We want it about our way. We want people, we want people to do that to us, not the other way around. But it's interesting that obedience comes from to hear or listen to. So obedience is first and foremost in openness to hearing what God has to say. Open to hearing what he wants us to do. And the catechism gives us two examples of people throughout salvation history. And there are many, many more. I mean, you look, you look throughout salvation history and there are many people who show this obedience of faith. But the catechism points out two particular people. The first one was Abraham. Abraham, who later became known as Abraham. 
And Abraham is the father of all who believe. He is the father of the Israelite nation. He is the first one that God made that promise that the Israelites would be a great nation. And he was given this promise and he believed, he had faith, he had obedience to God that it would be fulfilled, that God would do what he said. He didn't know where this was going to happen. After all, God says, you know, get up from your ancestral lands, the lands of your forefathers, and go to this place that I'm going to give you, this promised land. Well, he didn't know where that was until he got there. He didn't know how God was going to give him that land, because that land was already populated. What we today call Israel had many other tribes that had that land, and Abraham was even an immigrant to that land, if you will. He didn't own any of that land. He just was an immigrant there. He, he wandered through it. But he was promised that land by God. And he also didn't know through whom he would receive that land until his son Isaac. He trusted, though, that if he goes to this land and does what God calls him to do, has that faith, has that obedience, that he would be this father of a great nation. And, of course, it's through Isaac, who he even trusted to the point where God said, now you have to sacrifice your son, which sounds absolutely horrific to us today. But, again, out of obedience, he knew. He knew that God would fulfill his promise, and of course he did. He didn't have to sacrifice his son. God provided an animal for the sacrifice. So he trusted that God was faithful. He trusted, he had that trust to obey God and to do what God asked of him, and he received his reward. He received the reward of being the father of a great nation. You know, the Bible says, you know, look at the, count the stars of the sky, and your nation will be as, as great as the number of the stars. Well, of course, they didn't realize then how many billions and billions and billions and billions and billions and trillions of stars are out there. But for at the time, for what you could see, you know, that would still be a great promise. And the Israelite nation for, was a great nation, and it was the nation through whom the Savior of the world would come because of Abraham's obedience. The second person, of course, is Our Lady. Kind of appropriate, we're doing this right before the Feast of the Annunciation, which is that event that she showed her obedience to God. She trusted, she had faith that God would fulfill the promise did she know as a child that she was going to be the savior or the mother of the savior of the world? No. No, she didn't know that. It wasn't until the angel Gabriel appeared to her and told her she was to be the mother of the savior of the world that she realized she was the one through whom the savior would come into the world. And of course, she was obedient. She accepted that call. She accepted what God is calling her to do, to be that mother, the Savior. And she assented to it. She said, yes, may it be done to me according to your will. You know, she, she accepted it and took it. She made that yes. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. And she had faith that her son would be the Savior, would be the one to save us. And she kept that faith. She kept that submission of will and intellect to God throughout her entire life, including and especially as she watched her son go to the cross and die on the cross. 
she still had that faith. You know, so many of us would, we would be in that situation and we would despair. There are many who despair today about faith, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, how easily we can do that. But she recognized that our Lord's death on the cross would be that fulfillment. Did God speak to people more clearly back then than he does now? I mean, not him, mm-hmm. not him, or did they hear him more clearly than we do? I mean, God speaks to me, but it's, it's kind of quiet. Yeah, no, no, it... I don't know if I could sacrifice my son. Right. But that's me. That's my problem. Yeah. It's, I would argue that he hasn't spoken. Of course, you know, in the Old Covenant, he was revealing himself to the nations. And you know, realize when we're talking about these, the prophets and the patriarchs and the kings and all these people who, who God spoke to, whether directly or indirectly, those were a very small number of the entire people of Israel. Those were just the people that God chose to advance his plan of salvation. And the same thing with Our Lady. Of course, God himself didn't speak to her, at least not that has been revealed, but instead sent the, the archangel to speak to her face-to-face, directly. You know? And that, you know, as I talked about last time, that still happens to some extent in private revelation, where people do speak to God, whether it is in their hearts, you know, in their, in their, inside them, what we call interlocution, or through an apparition where, like, Our Lady will appear to the children at Fatima, for example. So, yeah, he still speaks to people today, and let's be honest, most of the time he speaks to us through our lives, you know, and he speaks to us through his church, where we don't hear his voice, but the Holy Spirit guides the church to help us know what to do, and so on. So that's what I was just going to say. Now we have the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. who guides us, and, and in the depth of our heart as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, but He does speak to us. He, and that's this is part of that obedience, that to listen. You know, listening, listening for His voice in our hearts, whether it's a, a literal voice or just that movement of the Holy Spirit pushing us. Um, one thing we, we talk about is, you know, that, that we believe in God. And we believe in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a trinity. And, of course, we believe in one God that is a trinity. We believe in one God alone. We don't believe in many gods. We're not a pantheon of gods. We have one God. And we express that belief in him through our faith, through our submission to him. But we do so, it's a free assent. And I'll talk more what it means for it to be freely assenting, freely agreeing to. But we freely assent to, we freely agree, we say yes to one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And we trust in that God. We trust in him. Our faith is trusting in him that his will, his truth, can lead us to salvation. That his truth is what is best for us, and so on. But we freely agree to that truth. And we we trust in him more than we can trust anyone else. No matter how trustworthy of a person we are, we will fail to live up to that trust at some point or another. That's human nature. That's part of our sinful nature. 
We know that other humans will, one way or the other, let us down. That doesn't mean we don't trust humans. We should still trust each other, and we should have people in our lives that we feel like we can trust, that we can be open and honest with, and so on. But we also recognize that there are going to be people in our lives that we can trust, but they're still going to fail. They're still going to fall short, because we all do. That's just, that is our human nature. But we can trust God completely, because he will not fail us. He will not fall short on us. We can trust him completely, and that is what faith is, is to trust him, to submit ourselves to him out of trust. But when we, we talk about God, again, as you know, said, we talk about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we cannot separate our belief from the Father and the Son, and we cannot separate our belief from the Son and the Holy Spirit. We believe in all three, and our belief in each one cannot be separated from the others. So, as our Lord himself says, believe in God, believe also in me. That, you know, where he is, the Father also is. You know, we need both of those. We believe in the Father, we believe in the Son. They are united. And our Lord tells us to listen to the Father. To listen to the Father and to have that obedience to the Father. Because our Lord is the only one who can reveal the Father to us. He is the only one who can show us the Father, because he's the only one who has seen the Father. Again, this is right out of our Lord's own words, right out of the Scriptures, that he is the Word of God made flesh who has seen the Father and reveals the Father to us. And then we have the Holy Spirit, who we cannot separate from our Lord, because our Lord sends the Holy Spirit down upon us. He, is the, he promised us that when he ascended into heaven, that he would send down the Holy Spirit, and he does that, and we receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit reveals the Son to us. He shows the Son to us, shows the Father to us. And the only person who knows the, the God is he himself. The only person who knows God completely is he himself. None of us know God completely. We cannot know him completely while here on earth. But he reveals himself to us and has revealed himself to us. And so our faith is in him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three are united and we cannot separate them. That's an important concept because, you know, sometimes we do that. Sometimes we, we talk about one and not the other. And, and, and that's not a bad thing in its own, you know, because each, each person in the Trinity works in different ways, but they are united in how they work, you know. And, and so, but we can't separate the three of them. Now, again, when we start talking about the Trinity, we have to tread very carefully because more heresies, we know more about the Trinity from heresies than we do out of what we really know, you know, what we know about it that's been revealed. It's we've made mistakes. So try to be very careful with, with the Trinity, trying to express it, which is why priests love Holy Trinity Sunday, where we have to explain the Trinity in a homily. Yeah, that's not a lot of fun. <laughs> Yeah, well, we, we do the best we can, and we, we try not to, not to trip over any ancient heresies in the process. <laughs> so, 
when we're talking about faith, faith has characteristics. You know, just like anything in the world, we can describe characteristics of things. We can talk about the characteristics of these tables and chairs. We can talk about the characteristics of our building. We can talk about characteristics of our relationships with others and so on. Well, so does faith. Faith has characteristics just like that. And the first characteristic of faith is grace, is that faith is a grace. Grace is a gift from God. It is something that God gives us. It is not something that we, we do ourselves. It is a gift from God. It is the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Grace comes to us through the Holy Spirit. And faith is what we call an infused grace. We'll talk about this much more, much more when we get to that part of the, the catechism. But there are basically two types of grace. There's infused grace, and then there's grace that we participate in. Infused grace is that grace that God pours down upon us. Think of like infusing tea or, you know, where it, it comes down and it fills us. That is what the Holy Spirit does. You know, when we receive the Holy Spirit at baptism, the Holy Spirit comes down and fills us. It's poured over us. That's, that, that's the language you'll often hear, is the Holy Spirit being poured out upon us, poured over us. Well, this grace infuses our soul. It becomes part of our soul. You know, we can't separate it. We don't want to separate it, but we can't separate it from us. But faith is also a human act. It is not just God alone working. We also participate in faith because we make the choice to have faith, to trust in God, to submit ourselves to God, to be obedient to Him to accept that truth that God has revealed to us and to live it out of faith. You know, and that's where the Catechism talks about full submission of intellect and will to God who reveals. You know, intellect, we, are, we use our intellect, we use our will to participate in that faith, to choose that faith. So we need both God's grace and our intellects and wills to 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 participate in faith, to have faith. It comes from God, but we participate in it. And so this, this leads to a, another interesting characteristic of faith, and that is the relationship between faith and understanding. We need both. You know, we need both our understanding and the faith that God gives us. We believe because we accept God's authority as truth. That God has the authority to reveal to us the truth. That he has the authority to do what he has promised. And that if we live in faith, we will receive that promise. We will be living in that truth. And so we are given proofs to accept that authority. You know, we talked about proofs before where... These, these are things we talked about in the first class about proofs of God's existence. Well, these are proofs of God's authority and his ability to fulfill his promise in faith. And the Catechism points out the miracles of Christ and the saints, first and foremost. Christ gave his miracles to show the need for faith, that people could trust God, that they could have this faith in their lives. And so the miracles were worked not to prove himself. 
but instead to point people to the Father, to point people to have that faith in God and to follow Him as the second person of the Trinity. It talks about the prophecies that have been passed down, both in the Old Testament and since then. There are still prophecies throughout the history of the church that have been fulfilled. Uh, again, a lot of times you see in apparitions and things like that, that there will be prophecies, such as a great war which happened shortly after um, with the First World War and the Second World War. We look at the, uh, the church's growth in holiness. This one I always kind of get a kick out of because despite our best efforts, the church has existed for 2,000 years. There's a, a story, and I don't, I don't know if this is an apocryphal story, if this is a real story, or if is this just one of those stories that gets passed around, but supposedly when Napoleon was out conquering Europe, and he was, he was setting himself basically up as the god emperor of Europe. He, he, had, he had big ego. Um, he went to, I believe it was the Archbishop of Paris, in, Cardinal Archbishop of Paris, and told him that he was going to destroy the church. He was going to conquer Europe and destroy the church. And this archbishop laughed and said, we have been trying for 1,800 years. You don't stand a chance. <laughs> you know? Of course, it's 1,800 years at that point. Now 2,000 years. The fact the church exists, and not just exert, exists, but has grown from a handful of people in modern-day Israel... A handful of nobodies, really, most people who followed our Lord when he was on earth were salt of the earth. They were people that would fit in no different than someplace here, like here. They weren't big celebrities. They weren't big rulers. They were just average people. And it went from this small group to a billion plus people throughout the world today, 2,000 years later. And the fact that the church has consistently spoken of holiness and led people to Christ and made saints is a sign of the, the working of God's truth in our world. And then this, you know, finally, in her fruit, fruitfulness and stability, and that ties in again to what I was talking about. You know, so all of these things are proofs that we can point to and say, yes, again, this isn't going to be a slam dunk, if you don't believe in God after looking at this, you're a fool. You know, but these are things that we can look at. And there will be people who will say, you know, the fact that the church has survived, that a human institution like the church has survived for 2,000 years, despite the scandals, despite the wars, despite the persecutions, despite the difficulties, she's still here. That is a proof. There are others who will say, that the miracles that were performed by Christ and his saints, that is a proof, and so on. So we see in all of these that not just does God exist, but he wants us to come to him and have this faith in him, have this trust in him. So because of that, we can have faith that is certain, that our faith is certain, it's trustworthy. You can put your money on it, you know, what he has revealed is far more certain, far more trustworthy than anything from human reason. 
Because human reason is clouded. It's not perfect. We've got limits to our human reason. But God doesn't. He, he created everything. He knows everything. And he's revealed to us. And we can have faith that what he has revealed is the truth with a capital T. Not just a truth, the truth. You know, people want to say, oh, that's your truth. No, this is God's truth. And God's truth is the truth for everybody. Not just me because I believe. But it is the truth. Uh, a great phrase that kind of goes along with this. Because we will have doubts. We will have questions about our faith. Uh, now, St. John Henry Newman, who was a, he was actually a convert from Anglicanism in, in the, uh, over in England. And he became a cardinal uh, in the 1800s. And he wrote, 10,000 difficulties do not make one doubt. So if we, if we question, if we're not sure, if we don't agree, these are difficulties. These are things that can be overcome if we have the open to that, openness to that. But none of them are a doubt against God. In fact, God wants us to, to be questioning. He wants us to receive or to be thinking. He wants us to seek understanding. And this, is, this particular phrase is very interesting. Faith-seeking understanding. That is a classic definition of what theology is. You know, you talk about theology, the study of God. It is faith-seeking understanding. Um, there's the, the, the miracle where, where, you know, the person to receive the miracle says, I do believe, help my unbelief. That is what theology is. Help my unbelief. Help me to believe more fully. This comes from St. Anselm of Canterbury, who is yet another person from England, although about a thousand years, not quite, before uh, St. John Newman. But, um, John Henry Newman. But uh, it's that understanding. It's seeking the understanding that faith is not blind faith. We are not to have blind faith. That's why we're doing classes like this. That's why we do Bible studies. That's why we, we have homilies at Mass and so on. The faith is not to be blind faith. It is to be faith that we go deeper. We seek to understand it better. We seek to understand our faith better so that we may see more clearly what God has revealed to us. In 2,000 years, the church has not reached the limit of our faith. We are still digging into it. We are still understanding it deeper. We are still trying to figure it out. There are things we know for 100%, we know for sure, that have been revealed to us as an absolute truth. And we're still trying to figure those things out. We know the Trinity is an absolute truth. One God, three persons. But how can that be? We're still trying to figure that out. We're still trying to go deeper into that. We need both that submission and seeking understanding. And because of this, because there's so much of faith also involves our intellect, our study, our digging deeper, faith and science often are said in the same sentence. And of course, you'll hear people say, well, you know, science isn't a part of faith. Faith isn't a part of science. The two are separate. What you believe as a Christian has nothing to do with science. Wrong. 
absolutely wrong. Faith is more sure than any human science because faith comes from God. What God has revealed is the truth that he has revealed to us. He also created what we study in science. We study the universe that he created in science. The two work together. In fact, there was a fairly lengthy encyclical written by St. John Paul II called Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason. And, you know, of course, on the internet they talk about too long didn't read. So the TLDR of Fides et Ratio is no, they're not opposed, and in fact, you need one to help the other. Now, he takes about 200 pages to say that, if I remember correctly. John Paul II was not, I love him dearly, but when he started writing, he just kept writing and writing and writing and writing and writing. He, he could not keep things short. But the idea is the truth that we have learned about our world in science cannot contradict the truth that has been revealed in faith and vice versa. Truth cannot contradict truth because they both came from the same God. And it's interesting when people say this, oh, science and faith are opposed. They're not the same. A lot of times it's because they don't actually understand science or faith. In fact, major, there are major scientific discoveries that still have repercussions for scientific study today that came from believers, some of whom were priests. Yes, they were priests. They, they had both. Um, the heliocentric model of the, of the solar system, which means the sun is the center of the solar system, not the geocentric model, which says that the earth was. The heliocentric model of the solar system first was, was proposed by Copernicus. Copernicus was, actually he was what they called a canon of the church, meaning he worked for the church. He wasn't a priest, per se, but he worked for the church. And Copernicus was never censured, except there were some errors in one of his books that were quickly corrected. You know, that happens. Miscopying, whatever the reason was. But he was submissive, submissive to the church as well as studied this science and advanced this theory of science. Unlike Galileo, who was actually supported by the Pope until he wrote a book where he made his Pope figure look like a fool. Not a good way to get on the church's good side, to tell this guy who's supporting you that actually he's a fool. So uh, he might have been. He might have been, but you just don't tell him that. <laughs> You're, you're paying my bills. I'm not going to say, I'm, you're a good guy. You're smart. I like you. you know? <laughs> so Copernicus developed the Helios, you know, or understood, was the first to really understand that the sun was the center of the solar system and not the other way around. This leads, of course, also to the Big Bang Theory, you know, the theory that the entire universe was created from a, a, well, a Big Bang, that there was a, a singularity that exploded and created everything in the universe. And this was first proposed by Father George Lemaitre. The funny part is, you've heard of the Hubble telescope? Fred Hubble thought the Big Bang Theory was ridiculous. 
He opposed it until more science later said, yeah, this actually makes a lot more sense with what we see in the universe, like the universe expanding. This was a Catholic priest, a Jesuit, if I'm not mistaken. The Jesuits have done a few good things in recent years. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, genetics. How many, of you, how many of you remember doing the, uh, the pea plant where you swabbed it and you did the traits of the pea plant and all that stuff in school? You know, you did it, I did it. I remember doing that, you know, like late elementary, middle school, somewhere in there. Well, that, you, you, we talked about the, the Mendel uh, law, which was dominant and recessive traits. It was the start of genetics that through our genes, of course, he didn't use that word because that word wasn't figured out until decades later, but through our genes, we have traits like blonde hair, blue eyes is a recessive trait. You know, you have better chance of having dark eyes than light eyes unless the genes line up properly, and so on. This all came from Gregor Mendel, who was also a, a very faithful believer. And then one that I had actually not heard until I was, I was kind of looking through a list of, the, of these people. It was kind of interesting. Some of the study of earthquakes and how we categorize earthquakes came from an Italian priest. Father Giuseppe Mercalli, just sounds like an Italian name, Giuseppe Mercalli. Um, he studied earthquakes, especially at Mount Vesuvius, which is uh, Pompeii. And he set up a scale of the intensity of earthquakes. You know, we talk about with, with um, tornadoes that they are given the, the F scale, zero to five, zero being no damage, five being wiped down to bare earth. Well, he created a similar scale, even before that, about the damage that earthquakes do, going from not even felt. No one felt it. It was such a minor earthquake that there was nothing to extreme destruction. And the U.S. Geological uh, USGS, U.S. Geological Society, or says uses this scale, an interpreted version of this scale, to um, Rank, rank earthquakes after you know we're, we're familiar with the Richter scale of you know the California earth, California earthquakes were you know seven point something that's Richter scale. Afterwards, they come back and they look at the damage that was caused by the earthquake and they use this Mercalli scale to rate what the impact of that earthquake was. So these are all people who were scientists who are also faithful believers, and there are more of them. This is just four of them I found on a list on a quick Google search you know, on the internet. You know, there are many, many more people, many more scientists today who are faithful scientists and faithful Christians. So faith and science work together. We need both. Um, or they're not opposed is a better way to put that. They're not opposed. Now, one thing that's important about faith, one very important trait about faith is that faith is free. There's a freedom to faith. And what I mean by that is, we're not forced to believe in God. Forced conversion never works. Forced conversion never works. It's been tried. You know, there are stories, sadly, of Christians going into regions of the world and trying to force people by the, by the tip of a sword or the butt of a gun to follow a faith. It's also been done by other religions. Islam has a history of that as well, as do others. 
face or forced conversion never works. It, they might practice it. You know, someone holds a gun to your head and says, you're going to be a Christian. Oh, you might go to Mass so that everybody sees you at Mass, so they don't come hunt you down and throw you in jail. But it's not real faith. It's just going through the motion. A imposed faith, a forced faith, faith is a lie. We truly, we freely choose, we freely choose whether or not to have faith in God. It is an act of our will to choose whether or not we are going to put our trust in God, whether or not we are going to have that submission to God. And we take this from our Lord. Look at every time someone comes to our Lord. He invited them to join him. And many of them did. But there were people who didn't. We can think of the rich man who came to our Lord and said, what more do I need to do? Sell everything you have and follow me. And what did that rich man do? He went away. He chose not to follow our Lord, not to have that faith in our Lord. Also, when our, in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, when our Lord revealed that, he is the, the, that we are to eat his, eat his flesh and drink his blood, people left. It says that you know, there was a number of disciples who left. They couldn't handle this idea that they would have to, they thought that he was talking about cannibalism. He was expressing the Eucharist but they thought he was talking about cannibalism. And he didn't go after him. Wait, 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 I was just using an analogy. It's not the same thing. No. He let them go. He let them choose whether or not to follow him. And maybe some came back, maybe they didn't. It's not been revealed to us. But he let them choose. Faith must be freely chosen. And we have the freedom to choose, and we have the freedom to fall away. But it's important that we make that choice because faith is necessary. Our Lord tells us, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. We choose our faith. We choose to follow Him. But if we wish to be saved, if we wish to enter into eternal life, we must have faith. We must have faith and we must be baptized. You know, we have, but we have to make that choice if we wish to be saved. We also have to persevere in our faith. We also have to continue in our faith, even especially when they become, becomes difficult to believe. Because we have chosen to follow our Lord. We have chosen to make that submission, but we must continue to make that choice daily to follow Him. Because we can lose our faith. That is a real thing. You hear stories of people who they believe, they're faithful, they're practicing, they're living their lives, and something happens. They have a doubt. They have a difficulty in life. There's a struggle. You know, we hear of, of many of the, the martyrs, that at the same time that, that they're being martyred, that they're being killed for their faith, that members of their families and other members of their parishes and so on, they, walk, they fall away. You know, the Romans, what they would have you do is if you were a Christian, they would say, here's a, an altar to Zeus, or Jupiter. I, I always forget which it is, the, the Romans and the Greeks. They're the same gods, it's just one's the Greek version, one's the Roman version. But here's, here's this altar to one of our gods. Sprinkle some incense on the fire. That was worship. That was worship of that god. Just take this little pinch of incense. 
And some Christian would say, well, I, I did it, but I really didn't believe it. No, you, you did the action. You did the action to deny your faith. By doing that, you're denying that there's one true God. You are giving the, the message that you believe in this false God. Even if you don't, you're still giving that message. But many Christians didn't. They persevered in that faith. They continued in their faith. And part of that is because they nurtured their faith. If we're to persevere in our faith, especially when difficulty comes, we need to nurture it. And I've, you know, I've talked about this in homilies, about you know, how we, we need to provide good nourishment to our faith. We need, just like you know, we we're talking before about watering our trees and so on, you know, watering our grass. Now the weather's getting nice. We need to nurture our faith. We need to you know, be in the Word of God. We need to be in the Scriptures, studying and learning about them, as well as the teachings of the church. Because we talked about how the teachings of the church are just as much a part of the Word of God as the Scriptures. We need to be asking for an increase in that faith. Again, going back to that, I do believe, help my unbelief. We need to be making that kind of prayer to have that belief. And then we need to be working through charity. We, our faith needs to lead to works. Faith without works is dead, is a dead faith. So we need all of that, and all that rooted in the life of the church. Because ultimately, our faith is the beginning of eternal life. If we have this submission to God, if we have this obedience to God, we will receive a taste of a very important part of eternal life. It's what we call the beatific vision. This is a phrase that we use when we talk about what like, what's it going to be like in heaven. And one of those things we talk about is the beatific vision. The beatific vision is a, a, a supernatural knowledge. It's a knowledge that's outside of our nature that we will receive in heaven where we will have complete knowledge of God. We will have that knowledge of God that Adam and Eve had before they fell. It accompanies the joy, the peace that we will receive in heaven. But it is a complete knowledge of God that we will have for all eternity. We will know him as we were meant to know him in the beginning. And so through faith we receive a taste of that. And it is through faith that we have these promises of peace and joy and love and eternal life. It is a taste. It is just a sample because this world is not the fulfillment of what we're supposed to be. This world is not the fulfillment of God's promises. And so we must have that faith to overcome the, the darkness and the despair of this world. You know, because how many people will say, well, you know, I look at the world and all I feel is darkness. All I feel is war and violence and hatred. You know, we see that. Of course, you, first step is turn off the TV, and that'll take care of half of it right there, um, especially if you watch too much news. But faith gives us the ability to resist that because of this taste of the promise of God. So that is what it means for us as individuals to believe. But we also have a belief that is communal, that is more than just us as individuals, because it's easy for us to fall into this, well, it's all about me. 
It's all about what I want. And, you know, some people talk about, well, it's me and Jesus. You know, it's me and Jesus. And that's our individual faith. That's our faith between us. That's putting our trust in Him. That's putting our submission to Him. But it is much more than just me and Jesus. And this is where we talk about we believe. And it's interesting that, you know, for some time in the Mass, we would say we believe, not I believe. And that's a very important distinction. We profess now, I believe in one God. Credo and unum deum. I believe in one God. Because it's each of us individually professing, stating our submission to those teachings when we do the creed during Mass. But for a long time, it was, we believe, and that's a different understanding of faith. That this faith that we believe as individuals is also professed by all of us as a church. That all of us as a church, we believe in one God. You know, it's, it's not about our personal beliefs, but joining in as a whole to this one faith. And so we profess the creed at Mass. We do say, I believe in one God, because it's us as individuals joining in to this community to profess what God has called us to believe, what God has revealed to us, this truth that we are to hold in faith. Because faith, first and foremost, comes to us through the church. It comes to us through the body of Christ, the church. You know, we, we think of the church as this earthly institution, but it's so much more. It's a body of Christ. It's a body of believers who are united under Christ the head. And our faith, first and foremost, comes through this, we believe, of the church. We receive that faith when we enter into the church at baptism. With the Holy Spirit coming down upon us, we are brought into the church, we are brought into the body of Christ. And that individual faith that we have, that individual submission that we make, is nurtured through the faith of the whole, the faith of the church. We need both. Because our church ultimately is our teacher, is our mother. And we talk about mother church. The church is our mother who teaches us in the faith. You know, it, the, it, of course, these are all analogies. These are all analogies of faith. These are all expressions. Because if you think about them too hard, you can see the flaws. But it's still a good image of the church as a mother who teaches her children. You know, we, we've, it's, our faith is nurtured by the faith of the church. Now, when we express our faith through the creeds, the creeds themselves are not the faith itself. The creeds are just the language that we use to talk about what we believe. You know, it, it's our faith is what we are expressing in the creeds. Our faith is what we are talking about when we are proclaiming the good news of the gospel. The words that we use help us to better understand our faith. So everything we talk about in the catechism is not the faith itself, but it helps us to understand what the faith is. It helps us to better learn the faith and pass it on. Pass it on to other generations. Pass it on to other people who have not heard it 
and also to live that faith, to understand and live that faith. Because ultimately, the faith is a beautiful thing that unites all of us, or it should. Because we only have one faith. There's only one God. A trinity, but only one God. And so he has given us this one faith that we all profess as members of the body of Christ, the church. Regardless of when in time we lived, regardless of where we lived, regardless of the languages that we, spoke, we speak, regardless of the culture we live in, it's all one faith. We all seek to express that one faith in our lives, through our words. And so when we talk about renewing the church, renewal, it's not changing that one faith. It's us seeking to better understand and express that faith. So when, when we talk about renewing the church, what we're talking about is how can we as a church, how is we as the body of Christ, better live and express and understand this faith that has been given to us? Because we only have one God and Father. We only have one path to salvation. We only have one body of Christ, one Lord. All this is universal. We express it differently by, based on our time and place where we live, but it's all expressing that one faith, that one faith in the Trinity. And so that wraps up this, you know, what it means to believe, what it means to have a faith. So I'm going to ask, are there any questions off of all of this that we've talked about, that I've talked about? I did that well, huh? <laughs> so just to understand a little better. Mm -hmm. um, so we're not, um, they don't point a gun at us and say you have to, mm -hmm. you have to believe in God. You have to have faith. Right. It's a free will mm -hmm. choice, yep. you said. Mm -hmm. yep. Well, there's a big but behind it. Oh. But. If you don't, you won't make it to the kingdom of heaven. Right. Well, that sounds like a gun to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, is it? But I mean, is, is it really? It's I mean, a carrot. yeah, oh. yeah. No, yeah. See, you're thinking of it as the negative sense of you know, yeah. if you don't. But there's there's the carrot of God saying, if, you know, if you follow me, if you trust me, you'll get eternal life. Yeah. He doesn't say, you know, if you don't, it's yeah, it's. Because, again, this is our choice whether or not to follow him. And we want to point at God and say, well, it's him pointing the gun at us, when really it's us pointing the gun at ourselves. We're not forced to choose for or against God. Can I add sure. If you ever live differently than what you do now, Mary Jane, mm -hmm. you know, like I lived in a dark side, mm -hmm. there's a dark side in my life and in me, when I crossed over to when I was like 33 years old, crossed over to God's way, you don't want to ever go back to where you were. Mm -hmm. The only way I can not go back to where it, that it was is to hang on to Him. Right. His bootstraps. Mm -hmm. And it's a big difference. And, mm -hmm. and you might, a person might not even really be able to visually watch my life as I move through it and see that difference. Well, there is. I mean, there, there is a big difference. But 
decide. It's either life or death. Mm -hmm. Life or death. It's oh, either okay. live in a vacuum or, or choose God. Yeah. Choose Him. Okay. It's scary. You know, and, and it's not a gun. Kind of a kind of a silly kind of a, <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and as a silly, not really a silly analogy, but kind of an earthly analogy based off of that, you know, talking about life and death, choice of life and death, there's a tornado coming at us, and you've got a choice. Get into a shelter or stand out there and risk the tornado hitting you and possibly killing you. Now, is somebody going to hold a gun to your head and say you've got to get to your shelter? No, but if you want to survive this tornado, you better get to the shelter, you know? Yeah. I look at it as, like communism, you give everything yeah. up, and, and you're hungry, and you're poor, and you're miserable. Every turn in our lives to follow God makes us happy. Forget heaven, forget mm -hmm. all of that. It's a psychological guide for us to be happy. Mm -hmm. So it's not a do this or else. It's like, listen, I know you better than you know yourselves. Yep. You follow me, you will be happy. Yeah. And, and it's... To me, it's not like you're giving something up negatively. It's something like, here you go. This is a guide. Yep. And you're going to benefit from it even while you're on earth. You got it. You got it. And, and coming off of yours, too, um, even if there was not heaven up high in the sky, you would choose this other way. Mm-hmm. Doesn't have to be reward, but it's just better. Yeah. Life is better. Well, that's what we talked about being fulfilled in God versus trying to seek fulfillment here on earth. You know, we desire to be with God. We desire to have to be in, in eternal life with Him. And we experience that on earth where yes, there is joy that comes from being with God. That doesn't mean life is easy, but there is joy in choosing Him. So we were just watching that on Forbes. We jo I joined. Mm, excellent. We were watching Chris Stefanik. Oh, he's great. He's and, fun. Yeah, and he was talking about he's, it's a lot of scientific studies and about who, who do you want to be? Who, or who, who do you, what do you need? Mm -hmm. Who are you? Um, and the study that they did for, what, 80-some years was it came down to the one thing people want is happiness. Mm-hmm. That's what we need as in the human race. And I feel like that's what God does is provide the happiness. Excellent. Yeah. Well, what about all the faithful? You said all, if you're faithful, you'll be happy. But what about all the people that are tortured and abused for, and, and left without food and um, nourishment that are faithful? You know, it, they're faithful, but they're but they're suffering. We we all have to suffer. So that suffering is part of mm -hmm. life. But joy does not. And when we talk about joy and happiness, we're not talking about the earthly emotion that we call happiness. It can be very. You know, there there are. I'll admit there are times that in the years I've been a priest where I'm really not feeling happy right now. You know. <laughs> Because I'm struggling with a problem in the parish or a problem in the diocese or a problem, you know, there's a parishioner who's given me, who's the thorn in my side, as St. Paul says, or, but that doesn't mean that I didn't find joy at that time. But peace is, maybe peace is a better way. Well, peace is part of it too. Yeah. Again, joy is, joy doesn't mean you're always going to be happy. You know, you're always going to feel that, and I want to separate it again, you know, joy and happiness are gifts from God. 
but they're different from the emotion that we call happiness. Just like love is a gift from God, but that doesn't mean that we're going to feel love, feel that emotion of love. You know, they're very different things. You know, joy and happiness are really more of a contentment of soul that you don't, again, you don't always feel, you don't always sense with your human senses, but it's there. You know, I would, there are times where I, I had one, uh, my, my secretary at the time, I actually had her convinced that I was getting ready to go higher on the railroad, on BNSF railroad, because it was just one of those really frustrating times. I wanted to just storm out of there and I was done. You know, that kind of, kind of day. And I had her convinced one point, I was actually, oh yeah, I hear BNSF is hiring. I hear BNSF is hiring. <laughs> Are you really going to go to the railroad? No, I'm, I'm just, I'm venting. <laughs> So, I mean, it, yeah, it, it's, I understand, you know, and understand, again, it, it, there will be times we won't be happy. But we will definitely have that joy and happiness that comes from God in our lives. And look at the lives of the saints. I mean, some of them suffered horribly. And I'm not even talking about martyrs. I'm talking about ones that they just had painful lives. And they had joy that radiated from them. You know, they didn't feel happy, but they had it. But they can choose it. That's the best thing about it. Mm -hmm. You can choose this. That yeah, we can choose to take up our cross. Yeah, we can choose to take up our cross and receive that joy that comes from it. Anything else? I feel like that choice is by design. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's, it, God wants us to make that choice every day. Like Absolutely. You said about your son. I question that every day. It's like I, I don't have that faith, and I, that bothers me. And, and I, I put myself into Abraham's. It's like, what did he, how did he make that choice? Clearly, he has, he must have had a different sign than I've ever had. Mm -hmm. But I think, and I go back to Jesus' time, you got to put yourself in his shoes. He would have got irritated with people not believing in him. It's like, how many friggin' miracles do you want to do? <laughs> you know, and it's like, but he didn't. He did yep. it. He kept doing it. Yep. And he kept doing it because he understood, as humans, we were going to question that faith. Yep. And I think he wants us to because every time we choose him, how many times do we choose him in a day? Yeah. And, and I think that's what he needs from us. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And our Lord, I don't know if frustration is the right word, but he had some pretty strong words when you look at how he talked to the Pharisees and the scribes who should have known better. I mean, at Den of Vipers. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty, y'all are a den of vipers, you're whitewashed tombs, you look pretty, but you're full of dead bones. You chewed out Peter a couple times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Be gone, Satan, you know, yeah. get behind me, Satan, you know. you know. So, I mean, he may not have gotten frustrated, but he definitely uh, let people have it when they needed it. So, absolutely. All right, well, very good. Uh, let's close with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.